So um, today we're going to talk about the Psalms. Last week we saw the book of Job. We managed to finally do one class where we went through a whole book and gave the overview of the whole book. So let's see if we can do that with as simple and short a book as the Psalms. The, uh, the Psalms are, um, I don't think it's controversial to say, longest book in the Bible. Definitely has the most chapters and it definitely has the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Uh, which is a tremendous tour de force when you're talking about really, really long psalms to God. So we're going to talk about the book of Psalms today. Um, when, I, when I teach this class to college students, we, uh, I, I have this video that I usually will put up on the screen, and it's, a, it's, on, it's from YouTube. And it's Bono sitting down and talking to Eugene Peterson about the psalms. And so for 10 minutes, Bono, which... Raise your hand if you don't know who Bono is. So in, in that college class, it was the opposite. Everybody was like, who is Bono? <laughs> this is a room full of people who weren't alive when 9-11 happened. They didn't know who Bono was. So, and, then, and so like I told them, like, they're in U2, and they were like, I hate them. They put that album on my phone, and, now, and so that, that's what they know of U2. Is, Wait, hold on. I think my battery's dead. I'm going to go swap out so that people at home can hear. Just a second. If I cannot deprive the people at home, then I will not deprive the people at home. They're probably screaming into the screen. Yeah, it's dying. The battery's dead. So now I know. It can go three Sundays without being charged. I'm turning this off now. Technical stuff. I think eventually we'll iron out the video stuff so that it isn't so much work. But for right now, it's still still a bit of work. So yeah, I and but Eugene Peterson and Bono basically talk about the Psalms. They talk about why they love the Psalms. Bono talks about how they're like blues, you know, like uh, the the psalmist is pouring his heart out and he's honest before God. And I enjoy the video. And Eugene Peterson, I think, I don't know if you've ever read anything by Eugene Peterson. He, he did the message. And so I think a lot of maybe reform types were just grumpy enough that we're like, the message is not great. So we don't like Eugene Peterson. Listen, Eugene Peterson is an awesome guy who meditates a lot on scripture. He's got a really good book called Eat This Book. And uh, has anybody read Eat This Book? It's a good book about meditating on scripture, not just reading it, but meditating upon it. And he's really solid. So I'm going to say something nice about Eugene Peterson. Um, I said, well, actually, I don't know if I say anything nice about Bono, but I love Bono. I'm like a a Presbyterian in just the right age range where like all of us of my age admit that we love you too, but we just don't talk about it. So I'm not afraid to talk about it. Um, So the Psalms, though. The Psalms are by far the most popular book of the Bible. I, I don't know, and, and I, I don't know how to quantify that. Maybe somebody could tell me the book of John is more popular, but I think the Psalms are. Um, I blame it on the fact that when you open your Bible, it usually falls into the Psalms. And that's how people read their Bible a lot of times. They just go, I'm going to read whatever I open it to. And it's usually the Psalms because it's in the middle. Um, the Psalms are the longest. They are probably the most familiar. Um, certainly, though... One of the hallmarks of the book of Psalms is that they are very personal. This is a book that you read, and the authors are not afraid to say precisely what they think and to address all sorts of difficult uh, emotions. They are experiencing joy. They let us know that as readers. They are expressing anger. There are some angry Psalms. 
I think you probably know if you, if you can just think about a few of them. We'll talk about some. Um, they express confusion. When they do not understand God's ways, they say so. Um, when there is praise, when there is confession to be made, they are pouring their heart out and they're letting God know. Um, the Psalms actually give a language to God's people so that we can talk to him. Um, one of the things, raise your hand now if you've ever read Augustine's Confessions, even part of it. If you've even read some of Augustine's Confessions. You actually have because some of our confessions of sin are stolen from the confessions. So everybody can raise their hand. Um, he, he basically speaks Psalms. I mean, that is, that's the language of Augustine. When he's talking, he will just say things. And in the newer editions, they'll put quotes around whenever he quotes the Bible. And I have this great edition that just like footnotes whenever he talks about scripture. And he just quotes the Psalms voluminously. And it's just how he talks. It's just how he addresses God. Um, so this is, a, this is, this book is significant and personal and it gives voice to God's people and how we should talk to the Lord. So when you talk about authorship of the Psalms, there is not an easy answer because this is a book that was written over the course of about a thousand years. Uh, it is a book that has at least 50 Psalms that are anonymous. They just don't have a name listed on them. No author listed. Um, Probably, as far as the years that it's written, it's written from about 1400 B.C. Does anyone know who might have written a psalm in 1400 B.C.? Moses. Moses. Yeah, we've got a psalm by Moses. Psalm 90 is a psalm by Moses. And then the last psalm would have probably been written somewhere around 400 B.C. And that would have been a psalm uh, by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and wept. Um... That's a, that would be an exile psalm. So you're talking around 400, a little before that, maybe 440. Um, so 50 of the psalms are anonymous. They have no author listed. We know Moses wrote one. We know that David wrote. Any guesses on uh, how many psalms of all the psalms? We have 150. How many of those were written by David? 73. You're so far from being right. I'm just kidding. It's pretty close. <laughs> You basically got it. 73. Yeah, 73 psalms are David's psalms. And truthfully, he could have written 80 because there are some that don't have names on them. So we may have some David's psalms. What's that? Maybe he wrote all the 50. And they just got tired of writing David next to them. Yeah, um, Yeah, I have all of them listed that are David's psalms, but I'm not going to read them all to you. But uh, Solomon wrote two of the psalms. The sons of Korah, by the way, sons of Korah are my favorite. Whenever I have a psalm that's actually my favorite, oftentimes I'll look and it'll say sons of Korah. And I'm like, I like those guys. I don't know much about them, but I like them. They're, they're good. Uh, the Haman, the Ezraite wrote one psalm and a guy named Ethan, the Ezraite wrote another one right next to it. So Psalm 88 and Psalm 89. You have a lot of authors contributing to this hymn book of, of Israel. So... <clears throat> Let's talk about genre. Let's talk about genre of uh, psalms. These things kind of range all over the place. There are a lot of different types of psalms. So I just want to address a few. Um, one genre of psalm that you might be familiar with is the genre of hymn. Hymns. Um, these would be praises. Another word for praises. These are songs that are just simply exalting God, lifting God up, remembering who God is. One good example of this psalm of a uh, hymn is Psalm 96, 1 to 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. 
By the way, I think when we start talking about Proverbs, we're going to talk about Hebrew poetry and something that defines Hebrew poetry. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you the big thing that defines Hebrew poetry. When we think of of poetry in the Western world, we think of, of poetry, say, in America. We usually think of something that's got a meter and a rhyme to it, right? Um, we usually say, "Look, it's got to ha- have this many beats per minute, you know, have this many beats per line." Um, we need there needs to be some sort of rhyming going on here. There needs to be at least some lines that rhyme. We look for these different telltale signs that there is a that there is that there's a poem here. Um, in Hebrew, you don't have those same telltale signs at all. The way you know that Hebrew is uh, is using poetry is repetition. You see repetition, but there's but it'll say something two different ways. So, for example, I just read you Psalm 96. That first verse. Listen to the first line again, and then listen to the second line. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. There's your first line. Sing to God a new song. And then it says, "Sing to the Lord all the earth." So there, it takes the first idea, and then it amplifies it. So it says, sing, sing, but then with the first one, it, it sort of changes it just a little bit to the second line. And so one of the, that's one of the telltale signs of Hebrew poetry is that there's this repetition, and usually it's like amplifying it from what was said before. So it'll say, do this thing, and then do this thing even more. That's a very Hebrew way of doing poetry. Um, so when you read in Hebrew, you don't actually see the words spaced out in the way we think of. Um, and actually, in Hebrew, there aren't even spaces between the words. It's just... Just if you ever read a Hebrew Bible in the original way that it's written before the Masoretes got a hold of it, it's just letter, 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 no punctuation, and you have to know the differences between the different words and what they all mean. So, um, even our Hebrew Bibles now, we're lazy, lazy, lazy people. Uh, we have vowels under our words; they didn't have vowels originally, and we have spaces between the words, and we didn't have spaces. So that, that's what you would look for, so that you know you were reading a poem in a Hebrew Bible. Um, so here's what a hymn does, though. It leads with a command. In this case, it says, it says sing to the Lord, or it'll, it'll lead off with a command that says, worship God, declare his glory, something like that. That's what a hymn does. It leads off with. And so functionally, the, 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 psalm, the psalm will lead off with calling Israel to worship. Uh, if you have a psalm of praise, almost all of them are perfect for calls to worship because they all are saying, come to God and praise him. Lift up God's name. It's setting the agenda for why we are here and what we're going to do. Um, it gives a reason for worship too. So the hymn will not only just say, uh, praise God. Why do I praise God? Just because. No, it, it gives a reinforcing reason why. That it, It'll give a logic of worship. Why should I worship God? Why should I glorify God? Um, and you'll say, because he has marvelous works among the people. Right? It'll say because he's got something that's worth praising. And so that's what a, a hymn will do. There's a logic to our worship. There's a reason why we lift up God's name. And so, by the way, this psalm style, the hymn dominates the Psalter. Even though the, the Psalms of Lament are probably more common, this is the one that when we think of Psalms, we usually think of these. We usually think of hymns. Um, some examples of Psalms would be uh, Psalm 96. Psalm 100, probably very familiar with, with Psalm 100. Um, All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. That's Psalm 100. That's a psalm of praise. Everybody come and worship. Everybody's supposed to come and worship. That's how that psalm leads off. 
Um, that's why I frequently will choose it as our opening uh, song because it's so perfect for calling us in to, to worship God. Um, Psalm 46, Psalm uh, 76 and 87, these are all psalms that, do, that fit the pattern. By the way, you will also find that many of these genre of psalms overlap with each other. So if you were doing Venn diagrams, some of these would just overlap with each other a lot. Some of these same psalms can also be psalms of lament. They, they can fit in more than one category. Because they'll say, they'll lead off like this. They'll lead off with words like this. And then by the end, what are they doing though? They're lamenting the place where they're at, where they're singing these songs of praise from. Um, that actually brings us to the second type, which is lament. Psalms of Lament, uh, Psalm 22. That was our reading this morning. Our reading this morning was Psalm 22. That's a Psalm of Lament. Now, it's also a Messianic Psalm. It's also a Psalm of, of Kingship. So you've got actually multiple overlaps there. Um, this is probably the most numerous. If you were to go through the Psalter and you were to write down all the Psalms, I think most of them would fit the category of Lament, or at least the vast majority compared to the others. Um, Psalm 70, verse 1. Listen to this. This is how it leads off. Hasten, O God, to save me. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. This is a psalm by somebody who's in trouble. He doesn't lead off with praises. He doesn't lead off with, uh, here's what's great in my world. Instead, it's the flip. He says, God, I need help. Do you ever have those experiences in prayer where you say, I know I'm supposed to come to God, and I know I'm supposed to glorify him and tell him how glad I am to worship him. But I don't feel like it because all I can see is trouble all around me. Now, I do that, but I feel guilty because I go, I'm supposed to be talking about God first. And there's some encouragement here with Psalms like this where you go, okay, there is precedent for God's people being so desperate and in such a rush that they do just come into his presence immediately just needy and asking him for help. And, and that's what these Psalms are. So usually a psalm of lament is going to include a few key things. One is the plea for help. There's begging involved. There is, there is the person telling God exactly what their greatest need is. Lord, help me, help me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a plea for help. That's a plea for God not to forsake you. Um, then there it also includes not just a plea for help, but it includes a complaint. In other words, let me clarify why I need help. Let me clarify why exactly my world is so bad. So Psalm 46.3 does this. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Right? His complaint is I live in misery and everybody around me taunts me. And it's not just a taunt in general, but it's a theological taunt. They're daring me to believe you're not there. That's a complaint. And he's saying, God, help me. Deliver me from that kind of a situation. Um, different elements in lament include an invocation. In other words, he's invoking God. That's what an invocation is. When our worship starts off, we have the call to worship. Then we have an invocation. The invocation is us reaching out and saying, God, here's what I need. I need you to do this. We need you to be here with us. We need you to send your spirit. We need you to enable our worship. Um, it's just a declaration of neediness, and it's a declaration that God's the one who can fulfill that. So that's what a, a lament usually begins with. It includes a plea for help. It includes a complaint. I mentioned those already. Um, oftentimes, it will include a confession of sin, or it will include an assertion of innocence. 
So sometimes you'll read the psalm and he'll say, I've been righteous, I've been upright, I'm being mistreated. And sometimes he'll say, Lord, help me, my sins have gone over my head. You'll have both of those kind of things. And they're both lament, but they include confession as well. Um, we're going to talk about imprecation in a minute, but sometimes imprecation. Who, who can tell me what imprecation is? And what are you asking God to do? Yeah, usually do something bad to this person, right? <laughs> um, it's bad speaking. It's sort of a malediction. I want something bad to happen to the guilty person. And so God, basically, you're calling for God to be just. That's what an imprecation is. I'm going to ask God, instead of showing you mercy, to give you exactly what you deserve. We're going to talk in a minute about where's the place for a Christian to pray like that? Is there a place for a Christian to ever Pray a curse on somebody instead of a blessing. Um, Psalms of lament also include confidence in God's response. Inevitably in these Psalms of lament, they have this element of darkness. And sometimes the Psalms of lament feel like mostly darkness. And then you do usually get somewhere a, a glimpse of the goodness of God, a glimpse that I know God is there. I know that there's hope. But oftentimes it's not plain to see and it's oftentimes not easy to see in the Psalms of lament. But there is confidence in God's response. He's going to do the right thing. And then because of that, you have this element of praise and blessing in the Psalms of lament. Um, Psalms of lament have this element of reorientation in them. So I'm using the word reorientation really carefully. It's one of the words that my professor Mike McKelvey used when he was talking about the Psalms. And he was saying that they begin by declaring their sadness. You know, they begin by declaring how bad things seem to be. And then they say, but I know that God is my deliverer. So they're almost writing to give expression to their sadness and their disappointment. And then they know that they need to think differently about the situation. And so they're, by, the, by being honest and then telling themselves the truth, they actually are able to turn the situation. And by the end of the psalm, they're able to find strength where they didn't, didn't have strength before. Um, you see that a lot in the psalms of lament. Um, again, like this is just teaching us, right? This is just teaching us how do we reckon with our own darkness? How do we reckon with our own sadness? How do we reckon with our own frustrations? Um, the laments give us a voice for our sadness or our, our, our sorrows. Um, the Christian life is not always a happy thing. And there has been great, pro I think there have been great problems, especially in the modern church, because we haven't taught people to expect sadness and we haven't taught people that lament is healthy we haven't taught people that sorrow is a regular ordinary part of life in this fallen world and so instead what do we do we tend to tell everybody that life is happy and it's so good now that we know jesus and yet i think you have a lot of people in the pews who go that's not my experience my experience is that my life got harder when i came to jesus it feels like i have just as much sorrow as i had before and so they need to, to have somebody around them take their sorrow seriously and their laments that they experience seriously. That's why I think we've got to highlight the laments. We have to, I think we have to sing the Psalms partly because when else are we going to sing laments? When else are we, go, we going to, to do this? Um, we need them. Um, it's probably the most needful for us today and, and certainly the most foreign. So that's interesting, isn't it? That we need these probably the most, and that they are the most strange to us. 
Um, we don't know how to do it. So that's Psalms of Lament. Um, another type of psalm, and you can already see how these would start to overlap with each other. You have Psalms of Confession. What is the most famous psalm of confession probably in, in the Psalter? 51. Psalm 51, right? Uh, David is confessing his sin. It actually says in the probably uninspired uh, heading that it's a psalm of David after he sinned with Bathsheba. Um, and I say probably uninspired because these were edited later and probably David didn't write at the top David after he sinned with Bathsheba. Well, he could have. Um, but but so, this, so it comes to us later with that heading. But Psalm 51 is an example of a psalm of confession. What does that do? It is written to proclaim God's righteousness and my sinfulness. God, you are right and I am wrong. You have done good. I have done bad. This is our relationship, Lord. I am in your, uh, I, I, I'm in the doghouse. And I know that I'm supposed to be in the doghouse. And Lord, I'm coming to you, telling you who I really am. Again, this is probably a subgenre of lament. They, they really overlap on the Venn diagram, but, but they're still distinct enough that I think they need to be uh, talked about separately. You also have Psalms of Thanksgiving. Psalm, Psalm, Psalm 34 is a really characteristic Psalm of Thanksgiving, just as one example. Um, psalm 18 also. Um, a psalm of thanksgiving is um, usually, actually, if you look in the Psalter, you'll find a lament and usually structured in the Psalter, there's a psalm of thanksgiving after it. It's just an interesting way that whoever put together the Psalter thought that was an appropriate thing to do. I think it makes a lot of sense. It's a good idea. Um, you don't want to group all the psalms of lament together where just everybody's having this sad goth party over here. And like, you know, you want to, you want to have a, some variety in the Psalter and you want to lift up from the dark places. And so you've got psalms of thanksgiving. They begin with praise. And then what do they do? They, be, they move on to reviewing God's rescue and, and how God did it. How did he rescue me? How did he save me? Or how did he save other people? And I'm remembering the ways that he saved somebody else. So one of your telltale examples of Psalm of of Thanksgiving is Psalm 18. Listen to this. So here's how it begins. I love you, Lord, my strength. Kind of starts off like a psalm of praise. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. Then... It flashes back to tell us in the past tense, what did God do to to make me say these sort of things about him? He goes back in verses five and six. He says, the cords of death entangled me. He's past tense now. He's talking about something that happened in his life. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called to my God for help. So do do you see that movement? Right? He says, I praise God. Let me tell you what happened that made me praise God. Right? He's, so he's giving thanks to God and he's remembering his past deeds. And then he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So he's remembering what God did. That is, that's thankfulness. That's gratitude. That is that's exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about Thanksgiving. We're being reminded of something good that God's done for us. Another type of psalm is a psalm of confidence. 
Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a psalm of confidence. Uh, Mighty fortress is our God. Practically a paraphrase of Psalm 91. Um, You are basically reading a hymn when you read Mighty fortress is our God that is just bouncing off of all these ideas in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to my God, to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, right? A mighty fortress is our God. Who is the one that I know I can take shelter with when everything else in my life is really, really bad? It is Yahweh. And that's what Psalm 91 is. Psalm 91 is one of those go to Jesus Psalms. Really important. We need it. Um, you have Psalms of Remembrance. Psalms of Remembrance. Got to get start scribbling smaller. Sorry, everybody at home. I don't know if you can still see when we get lower. Um, this would be Psalm 78, Psalm 105. These are Psalms of Remembrance. And again, they sound like Psalms of Thanksgiving. Like that's on purpose. They... They overlap. Um, What does this psalm do? What does this kind of psalm do? This kind of psalm remembers things that God has done. Really great things that deserve to be remembered. Uh, I have a life full of events. Not all of them deserve to be remembered. Um, Not all, none of them I can think of actually deserve to have a song written about them, for example. Um, But Yahweh, on the other hand, you just open scripture. And basically on every page, you're finding things that are worthy of a song. Things that are worthy of being remembered. That's what the psalmist does, right? The psalmist says, I'm going to remember a few things that God has done. It's going to fill my mind with worship. Just thinking about God doing things because he's God. Um, So Psalm 78 does this. Listen to how it starts off. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Right? We're going to remember stuff our parents told us that God did. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. We have a lot of, we have a storehouse of great things we know about God. And we're going to make sure to tell our children. That's what the psalm is saying. We're going to remember this stuff. We're going to tell them. Teaching our children what God has done. Psalm of remembrance, Psalm 78. One of the greatest struggles of the Christian life is actually not the struggle of knowledge. We do not have a knowledge problem generally. We have a remembering problem. We have a being reminded problem. So when we come to worship, you know, I hope that you hear really familiar stuff in the pulpit. I hope the stuff you're hearing is not, oh man, I've never heard anything like this before. My hope is you're remembering all the stuff that you've been forgetting. And that's, that's what my real hope is. Um, Now, if you're new to the Christian life, I hope you're hearing new things. But if you've been around the block a few times, you know, what you should expect to hear is actually not new stuff all the time. You should be expecting to be reminded of the thing you knew you were supposed to remember and you forgot. That's a big part of the Christian life. Let's remember. So you have Psalms of Remembrance reminding us of the need to remember. Um, Wisdom Psalms. Wisdom Psalms. These are Psalms that praise the, the wisdom of God. You know, you got Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. Uh, you got Psalm 19 is a wisdom psalm. And they usually draw a connection between the wisdom of God and the wisdom we need to have. Um, 
Psalm 1 is a really good example, right? The, question, the, the Psalm 1 it says, what's a wise person? What's a godly person look like? And then it says, well, here, it's the, somebody who's like, it's like he's planted by streams of water, right? Like a tree planted by streams of water. That's what a wise person's like. This is what a godly person's like. This is somebody who loves the law of God and wants to live it out and put it into practice. And so that's what Psalm 1 does. Psalm 19 talks about the wisdom of God being etched upon the sky and being able to see it at every turn. And everywhere we go, we're being reminded that the creator put all this together and he's incredibly wise in how he governs all things. That's Psalm 19. Um, Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the longest, longest chapter in the Bible. A, an incredible reminder of the wisdom of God in his law. It's just verse upon verse upon verse praising God for the wisdom of his law. And the goodness of his law and the importance of meditating upon his law. What does a godly person look like? Someone who loves that law. Um, I'm moving fast. I keep looking at my non-existent watch. It's really frustrating. It's like, uh, it's like I've got phantom pains in my hand that I know it should be there. Okay, now I'm writing completely out of view of those at home. I'm very sorry. And for those of you right here, um, we have kingship psalms. Kingship Psalms, um, these are like Psalm 3, Psalm 93, these are kingship Psalms. Um, there's a close connection between the Psalms and the king. 73 of these Psalms were written, written by a sitting king, no, 75 of these were written by sitting kings of Israel, at least 75, because you've got David and Solomon, both of them composing for the Psalter. Um, many of these are written by the king himself, sung, uh, but these psalms focus on God as the king. So he thinks of himself as the king, and then he filters through that thought of what it's like to be the king himself. And then he actually sets his eyes higher, and he goes, I know I'm the king, but I know you're the real king. And so he's, he's exalting God, remembering that God is the king of, of Israel, the king of his people, the king of the universe. All the ways that God is king, he's being exalted in these psalms and lifted up. Um, psalm 93, listen to this. The Lord reigns, right? That's kingship language. He is robed in majesty. Again, you've got that robe. You've got that kingly uh, raiment on him. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Some of these Psalms are written in first person. So you have the king struggling with his enemies, right? So Psalm 3 is a kingship psalm, but it's not exactly triumphant. Instead, it's this struggling psalm, right? He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? And then he's got psalm of confidence, though. I will not fear, though 10,000 assail me on every side. So just always remember these psalms don't always fit neatly into different categories. They overlap. Um. I want you to remember, though, when you read kingship psalms that you are, are reading about God and you're reading about a literal king. And the, the person who's writing doesn't always see, he's, he knows the difference between himself and God, but he also knows that God is the real king of Israel. David has this appropriate sense of who the creator is. He has this healthy sense of who the Lord is. And then also remember this. You have the ultimate king that the kingship psalms are pointing to. What are they pointing to? They're pointing to not King David, but they're pointing to this coming king who's going to still sit upon the throne of David. So always remember that there's this Jesus element in all these kingship psalms. 
when you read a kingship psalm, you're seeing something that dovetails with the life of Christ. You're seeing something that takes us from David or Solomon or some other king and sets our eyes further out to the real king who's coming, who's going to redeem and rescue and do all the stuff that David can't really do in his own power and Solomon can't do and didn't do. Instead, you need somebody else, someone who can actually fulfill all the expectations of a king and who can't die. So that's Jesus. That actually takes us to the last kind of psalm that I want to mention, although there are even more categories than just this. And this is really going to be low down. Sorry, everybody. It deserves to be higher. I probably should have put this first. But this is Messianic psalms. So this would be like Psalm 22. Oh, let's make some room. Psalm 45, those are examples of Messianic Psalms, right? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, The Messiah means anointed. Messiah means chosen by God. Um, The Psalms are just filled with this future expectation of somebody who's greater than David. There's this Messianic hope just permeating all of these. You have this Davidic stamp on the Psalter that brings Messianic significance to the whole thing. Think about this. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, David gets this covenant from God and he's told that there's going to be one who would be my, uh, David's son, but he would never stop ruling. And David knows, well, if his throne's going to be eternal, that's going to be difficult to do if he's a mortal man, right? There's this reality there. And yet uh, the Psalms drive us to Jesus because nobody else in David's line fulfills this until you get to Jesus. Jesus also would read these Psalms and what would he do? He'd actually quote them and say, this is talking about me. Um, He reads Psalm 22 from the cross and he's got it memorized. He has it. He's like, he's like Augustine in the sense, or Augustine's like Jesus in the sense that Jesus is just speaking Psalms. He's just talking. What does he do in his hour of darkest lament? He quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has a voice to the sort of sorrow that he's experiencing. And Jesus says, I'm identifying myself with David. My prayer here is the prayer that David prays in Psalm 22. So these are messianic psalms. If you asked me to list every messianic psalm, I would cheat and say 150 messianic psalms. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that would be cheating, though, so I won't do that. Um, We have a couple minutes. I have a few things I would say if if we went through a few psalms, but I do want to talk about imprecatory psalms. I want to talk about imprecatory psalms. One of the darkest, trickiest imprecatory psalms is Psalm 137. Um, So an imprecatory psalm is a prayer for evil or misfortune to fall upon someone. It's when you say, God, give this person justice. Give this person what they deserve. Um, It's a hard thing for somebody who's experienced mercy to imagine righteously praying for somebody to get what's coming to them. Because we know what would happen to us if we got what came to us, right? We know that if someone prayed an imprecation for us and God answered it, that we would be totally destroyed. So it's really hard for us to, (laughs) to, to, to imagine doing that. So from a Christian perspective, how can we use imprecatory psalms if Jesus has been kind to us, if Jesus has been merciful to us? Well, let's look at Psalm 137. If you have your Bible, you can open it to Psalm 137. I just want to read a few lines here. Um, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. This is probably one of your last psalms composed in the Psalter. 
They're remembering being in Babylon, which means this is written after the exile, which means we're probably talking 400 BC. So by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They remember what it was like to be in Israel and how far they have fallen. Here they are now in the land of Babylon, no land for themselves. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. We didn't play songs when we were there. We hung our lyres up. What use do we need to be holding lyres in this miserable land full of pagans? (laughs) And so they hung up their lyres. And it says, for there are captives required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Pretend to be happy, you guys. They were asking them, keep pretending to be happy. But they said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And then listen, here's where the imprecation comes in. All of that's lament up to now. And then listen to this. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. So I want you to return to these people what they did to us. And then it ends on this note that says, Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I want someone to take your babies and throw them on the rocks so their brains are spilled out. That's what the psalm ends on. Um, One time I was listening to a Rich Mullins concert. Does anyone even remember Rich Mullins? All right, I have a long, old love of Rich Mullins because I'm from Kansas, and so is Rich. So anyway, one of his concerts, he read that, and he was like, that's not a very pro-life message. I was like, well, yeah, it actually is, but maybe we can talk about why that is. But it actually is a pro-life message because Psalm 137 is crying for ironic justice. You know what ironic justice is? Ironic justice is when somebody gets the thing that they should have gotten. It's, the, it's when somebody gets the thing that they caused someone else to experience. Um, you know, um, Aaron was telling me that they were having, that, they, that for the women's group on Tuesday, they were talking about Haman in the book of Esther and how, you know, Haman just totally gets exactly what he's planning to happen to Mordecai. Like, what a hilarious moment. And it just like, he just gets what he deserves. And there's something beautiful about someone getting what they deserve when they're just so evil and they're planning something so bad. And so what, how do we read Psalm 137? Think about the sort of things that were done to the Israelites in the invasion of Israel. I, I suspect that this is somebody who knows precisely what happened. There were little ones killed in Israel in the invasion of Jerusalem. There were little ones who were thrown upon the rocks, probably over the walls of Jerusalem. Could you even imagine the unbearable sight of those little broken bodies and how you would still remember it 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years later when you're maybe even returning to Babylon and you're remembering when you were a little kid and you were dragged out of Jerusalem and you're remembering that city and what it was like to see it burning and to see all those little broken bodies. You get back to Jerusalem, you're remembering your time in Babylon, and you're thinking, you are not forgiven for what you did. And you're praying for God to do something. A really good book, if you're interested in psalms of, of imprecatory psalms, this is a good book. It's by a guy named Eric Zinger, a god of vengeance, understanding the psalms of divine wrath. Uh, it's a really good book if you want to learn more about imprecations. Um, I also have a book in my office that I haven't read, so I'm not 
100%. But I like the writer. His name's Jay Adams. Jay Adams wrote a book called War Psalms of the Prince of Peace. Um, I think that's a book that also addresses imprecatory psalms. So you have a few books on that subject that I will just nudge you towards. Um, imprecatory psalms give expression of justice. They express our need and our desire to see God do what is right when there is a lot of things, are a lot of things in the world that have gone wrong. Um, so there is a place for them. Um, I want to just jump ahead and just say a few words about the place of Psalms in the church. One of the things that we, we need in the church is we need the Psalms. And I've expressed sort of the reason why. Look at the variety of what the Psalms do, the voice that the Psalms give to us, um, the importance of this book. Um, they tell us how we can express our sadness to God. They show us how to confess our sin. They show us how we can tell God, thank you. Um, they show us, they, they point us to Jesus. Even when we're reading the Psalms, we're being pointed to Jesus. Sometimes in ways that we don't recognize and we don't notice, but he's doing it. He's pointing us to himself. Um, at the same time, uh, one of the roles of the Psalter is quite basic. It's the songbook of Israel, right? David is taking his role as king of Israel and he's teaching the people, how are you supposed to worship God? And he's writing song after song after song and they're writing them down and they're putting it to music and they're giving the names of the songs, which we don't know those songs anymore. We don't know the tunes, but they're obviously planned to be sang by the people of Israel. And so what we have when we look at the Psalms is we have an inspired psalm book. We have a song book for our churches, now, it's not the only psalm book. Um, I believe the Bible says that we are to be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There is a whole debate about what that means. But I would just simply say this. I think it's incontestable that the New Testament commands us to sing psalms. It does. Now, it also commands us to sing songs with Jesus' name in them, for example. Um, if you want to do that, you're going to have to sing something outside of the Psalter. So I think it's appropriate for churches to sing songs that aren't only psalms. But there are a lot of churches that need to be inclusive psalmists. They need to make sure the psalms are being sung. Um, I'll give you just a few examples of this. One, I just think it's cool. Uh, I will pass this around. You can look at it. I know we're out of time, but I'm still going to pass it around and let you look at it. Uh, the, uh, the Church of Scotland gave this to us. The Free Church of Scotland gave this to us. It is a psalm book, but check this out. It is a split Psalter. Have you ever seen a split Psalter? So you've got your lyrics on the bottom and it's got the, the meter for the song. And then at the top, it actually has the list of tunes that can be sung to this psalm. And you can turn to the specific page with that tune in the Psalter. So you can sing one song to like, I don't know, 10 different tunes. And you can turn to the appropriate tune. But can you imagine as a congregate managing this, right? <laughs> Turn to, no, to Psalm 55, tune number 355. <laughs> you, you have to announce the song like six times. But I just think it's so cool that they have this. I think it's neat. I'll just pass this around. Um, Church of Scotland, pretty dedicated to singing psalms. Nobody ever accused them of not liking the Psalter. Um, another Psalter that I want to, to bring to your attention is pretty new. I, it, I think they just started publishing it last year or the year before. It is the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. So we've got Trinity Hymnals under the seats. Well, the, the OPC and I think it's the, is it the RPCNA? Uh, no, the URC. 
So the URC and the OPC joined forces and they said, what if we made a Trinity Psalter hymnal? What's a Psalter hymnal? The first half of the book is Psalms. So all the way up to about right here. So this, this half of the book is Psalms. And then this is basically, you know how there's songs in the Trinity hymnal that we don't sing? There are like reasons that some of those songs don't get sung, right? They're, they're not singable. They're hard to sing. Um, the, the, they're, they're just not, they have not, some of those have not stood the test of time. And so they recognized this. So they went through the Trinity hymnal and they trimmed the fat. That's what I'll call it. They trimmed the fat. They took the songs out that they basically were asking everybody, do you ever sing this? And nobody was singing these songs. And they removed those songs. And they actually added a few. So they added some songs by the Gettys, right? And Christ Alone now is, is in the back of this hymnal. Um, and some others as well. How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I think that's in here. So they added some songs that probably should be in the hymnal. And they removed a bunch that probably shouldn't be in the hymnal. And then they put psalms in the front. And then just for good measure so that Adam would like it, it also put like all the church confessions and stuff in the back. So you basically have like, they made it for me. They just made it for me. So anyway, um, I think this is a great kind of thing to do to just intentionally move towards singing songs. Yeah, Frank, were you going to say something? No U2 songs. Although although U2 did sing a song based on a psalm, Psalm 40. So if you ever listen to the song 40 off the album's war, it's just them singing a psalm. Those, those poor children were so soaked outside that they came in. So now I'm going to close us in prayer. I stayed an extra five minutes so that I could talk nice things about the Trinity Psalter hymnal. Uh, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us songs, that you have given us psalms to express your heart and the heart of your people, to remind us how we can take shelter in you, to remind us what it is to confess our sin, uh, to remind us what it is to remember you. Uh, I pray, O oh God, that we would be people who utilize the Psalms. Help us to be people who speak the language of the psalmist. Help us to, to be people who love Christ and who are drawn to the Messiah who is pointed to in every page of this book. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.